I get to say hello to our listeners. Hey, this is Marcia Epstein with Talk With Me, and this is on LawrenceHits.com. And I say that this show is at the intersection of art and mental health. In fact, I say that's where I live in that neighborhood because of the variety of things that are important to me and to me, the connection that happens with those two. And so my guest today is such a perfect opportunity to say, yeah, that neighborhood really exists because our connection comes through both art and mental health. My guest today, Ralph Adamo is one of my fellow judges for an annual writing contest that's sponsored by the American Association of Suicidology and the QPR Institute, which is a suicide prevention organization. And we have an annual writing contest for people who have the experience of living with suicide thoughts and even past attempts for them to write, be able to share messages that really are inspiring about their journeys, their lives now, their lives before. They, they're, they're real, they can be hard to read, but they're always inspiring. And this contest happens with um, prizes awarded at, at the annual conference of that long name association, American Association of Suicidology, the study of suicide and suicide prevention in particular. Um, in April of each year in different cities, that conference was pretty recent in terms of when this show is being recorded. We had wonderful writings to read, wonderful acceptance statements from the top three winners. It's a great experience. So that's one connection that I have with Ralph. Um, he and I have been judges for that contest for all three years. And then there's this other thing that happened. So a couple months ago, I finally got to do a show with a poet and noted translator, Mark Statman. And Mark and I had connected through another poet, and it was a wonderful conversation. He's a delightful person and very talented writer. It was great fun. And as I was looking at information about Mark and someplace he was performing, um, the New Orleans Poetry Festival, I see in the list of featured performers, Ralph Adamo. And it's like, wow, what a coincidence. I had no idea. I knew that Ralph taught at Xavier, but I didn't know that he was a poet. I never really looked into that. And so then it was like, oh man, I got to get this guy. We got to have a conversation. So after all that introduction about art and mental health and that, that neighborhood that we're in, I want to welcome you, Ralph Adamo. Thanks, Adamo. Darn it, I said it wrong the first time. That's good enough, yeah. <laughs> um, Ralph, thank you. Thanks. And this is going to be fun. Yeah, no, thank you so much for asking me. I, I really have looked forward to doing this. I was just going to say, I, I will give people links so they can read some things about you. But just tell tell our listeners a little bit about you so they get a sense of, in addition to this judge of this contest and poet, um, tell us a little bit, just a, a, a little bit about you, and I would say also sort of the span of your poetry, because you're not a new poet. Um, no, I've been doing this for a long time, but let me say first, the uh, the, the mental health connection, I, I uh, maybe you can enlighten me here, I, I, I was never quite sure why I was even asked to be a judge in the first place, although <laughs> I have to say, it's been a really, uh, what you said, it's been a really uh, interesting um, some kind of sometimes nerve-wracking experience to to read the uh, the entries. We get about 
15 or so that we read and, and make comments on and, uh, and uh, suggest rankings for. And I have to say that, you know, a number of them always just make me, they're, they're, they're hard to forget. They're hard yes. to, um, uh, it's, it's astonishing to me how, how, you know, people can write so honestly really about their own uh, pain and the right. past of their pain anyway. And, so, but that's one thing. Uh, well, yeah, I've been, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a young poet anymore. Uh, <laughs> and I think I was at one time a young poet. And uh, <laughs> hard to remember now, but uh, I started publishing uh, when I was an undergraduate in the 60s in, in a couple of pretty good magazines. I had uh, uh, some success that way. And I, so I've, I've you know, thought of myself as, as a, you know, as a, I'm putting this in quotes, professional poet, probably since then. Um, but I've done a lot of other things, obviously, uh, to make a living. Um, I went to graduate school at the University of Arkansas in the early 70s um, and was there with a number of extraordinary writers, some of whom I know that uh, your listeners have, have read and, and know about uh, people like the novelist Steve Stern or the late poet C.D. Wright. Uh, Frank Stanford, also a late poet, uh, Leon Stokesbury, uh, Sam Gwynn, Jack Butler, a novelist and poet. Uh, it's a long list, and that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. But it was, uh, I remember in Mark's uh, this conversation with you, he talked about a group of poets that he was associated with from the time he was in, in graduate school. And, uh, and that made me think of... Uh, Kind of how fortunate I was to be a student with these other extraordinary young writers, and uh, and to be able to watch their careers and their books blossom out there has been really, uh, really something. Yeah. Anyway, so, but, but I didn't much like the academy at that point, and so I spent the next fifteen years doing anything else to stay out of it. I was a newspaper reporter. I wrote for TV. I, I was a stagehand. Uh, I did some carpentry, but I was really bad at it. Um, really bad. And uh, <laughs> people, people, my friends kept me on because they knew I needed an income. But, you know, um, anyway, I did a lot of other things, but I finally drifted back toward university teaching. I went to teach uh, because I had just been working as a journalist. I taught journalism at the University of New Orleans for a few years. Uh, I taught creative writing at Loyola for a few years and edited their magazine, New Orleans Review. Um, I taught at LSU for a few years. Katrina kind of ended that. And then uh, after a year, a year or so after Katrina, which was in 2005, for people who don't remember it, um, I uh, ran into uh, an old friend who said, uh, hey, why don't you apply at Xavier? And I did, and I've been there ever since and been very happy, I must say. It's, it's, uh, um, the department I teach in is full of just really wonderful people, and, and the university has a, uh, it's a, it's a historically black college, uh, HBCU, the only Catholic one in the country, and uh, it has an extraordinary mission, and, and it takes that mission seriously to sort of uh, not just to educate uh, minority people, but uh, but to promote social justice, and uh, and I think most of us take it pretty seriously. And uh, and along the way, I've published 
seven books. The first uh, two full books were collect- collections were uh, published by uh, C.D. Wright and Frank Sanford started a press in the late 1970s called Lost Roads, and they were kind enough to publish two of my books and published another book 10 years later with a press here called uh, New Orleans Poetry Journal Press, uh, run by a fantastic poet, also a late poet, Maxine Casson. Um, and then a poet editor, John Travis, published my selected poems in 2003, and Joe Lavender, one of the uh, brightest and sort of most creative writers and editors I've ever encountered, who runs Lavender Inc., uh, published a, a collection in 2014 called Ever, and that sort of brings me up to date, except I have to say I have uh, two young children, despite my great age, and uh, and uh, they are, uh, they have been, are the light of my life, and they sort of, you know, refocus everything about my life as children will. Mm-hmm. But usually they do it when you're younger, and you know you can take more advantage of the refocusing. I think. But uh, anyway, so that's, that's I guess that's enough. So teaching, writing, and young children mm. sounds good. I, te- I, I yeah, I teach. Uh, I teach. Pretty much everything of writing and literature at, uh, at Xavier, and I also edit. Uh, and this, let me say, for any writers out there listening, I edit Xavier Review, which publishes twice a year, which is uh, national, even international journal of literature. And I'm always looking for uh, new work by uh, by good writers. So, uh, and that can be found on our website, Xavier University website. Not the one in Cincinnati, the one in New Orleans. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so, you know, as you talk about that, you know, long career and that that nurturing each other group of poets yeah. that got to know each other, which to me is an example <clears throat> of why I w- was so drawn to poetry and other art after I sort of emerged from a life that was mostly in the nonprofit world of, of uh, both counseling and crisis counseling, suicide prevention, but also some of the things that, that contribute to that, including issues related to income and, uh, and different kinds of mistreatment and all kinds of things. When I, when I left that world as where I was living more than full time, and I was asked to start a radio show, and my first reaction was, I don't know anything about doing a radio show. And, and I was told, <laughs> we have interviewed you. You will be good. <laughs> you know? And so, so LawrenceHits.com, which at that time, um, Jay Walks and Daniel Smith, who's still the producer with me, those two have this station, and Kim Murphy was part of that founding group um, with the the idea of me doing a show and some other shows that were started around that time I it gave me this this opportunity to to figure out well so what do I want to do with this show there was kind of a concept but you know I I also needed to make it mine and also it needed to fit um, for me in in what I thought was responsible and helpful and sort of what that would look like and so I started looking at some stuff online and, and stumbled across the poetry of 
Shane Coison, who's a spoken word poet in, in Canada. And, and what got me was that he was writing about the things that I had been immersed in in my counseling with people. He was writing, really? writing messages about you know, being able to get through the kinds of experiences that are really difficult that a lot of us have had at different points in our lives. And some right. of us have had more than others. And so I thought, this is very cool, you know? And it's <laughs> like, okay, so if this guy's doing this thing and I find it online, it's gotta be going around all over. And, you know, I will be, admit that I'm one of those people who, uh, my introduction to poetry came largely through bad teachers. <laughs> and so I wasn't uh, inspired yeah. to yeah. pursue that art. I, I was, I've always been right. a reader, but, but poetry wasn't anything I ever turned to. And then suddenly I, I, you know, I sought out some people around here and learned that even in my home community of Lawrence, Kansas, we had several former poets laureate of Kansas and that mm -hmm. everybody's writing was very accessible and very, you know, it spoke to me. And it, yeah, there's lots of differences in in the way people write and the things people write about. And, you know, even like how many words people tend to use, some people whose poetry is really brief um, and, Fair. Right. you know, those punch lines that wow, and, and other people that have a little bit more of a narrative feel to their poetry. Right. Anyway, I started, I started seeing this and it's like, this is a set of people who are, open about things going on in their lives and in the world in a way that I'm used to in my counseling setting and with my colleagues in suicide prevention. This is very interesting. And also people who are very collaborative. And I will say I kind of shunned a few people when I realized they were more about promoting themselves than, than really being um, involved with anybody else's right. art and, and I'm, I'm just in my life those aren't the people I need in my life but so many people <laughs> were, were you know kind of parts of groups and, and were very interested in in some mentoring of other people some encouragement you know I had people who were experienced poets at the mic and, and on the page say you know when somebody gets up to the mic for the first time and you can hear their paper rattling, you know, that's part of the poem and we encourage them, you know, we want yep. people to be able to do this, you know? And so I was finding what I would call all this love. And it's like, these are my people, man. <laughs> this is you know, very I, cool. Can I say something? The, the, sure. uh, the, the, the experience you're talking about, I think is, is, is real for word for first, but, is kind of new. Um, when I was uh, in graduate school in what is now mid 20th century, you know, all, well, late mid 20th century, um, I think poetry was still um, under a different kind of star, you know, and, and the and the uh, the idea was to you know to make a name for yourself and to be you know to be an important poet and to be you know to have a career and that kind of and all that still matters a little bit. But what I've noticed in the last I don't know ten twenty years and particularly here in New Orleans where I am is uh, is poetry as a community uh, is a real thing and it and it's extraordinary. It, it it changes everything. It really does. Um, we have. Uh, Bill, my publisher, Bill Lavender, and another publisher here, Megan Burns, created the New Orleans Poetry Festival. No institutional support, really no money, uh, just, you know, desire. And uh, 
and energy and uh, and it came together and it happened and uh, there are there are readings and little groups all over New Orleans like that uh, where people support each other and um, and have publishing enterprises and collaborations and mm-hmm. it's uh it's a very different poetry world from the one I think I was introduced to in okay. uh, in graduate school, but a, a much better one, the one you're talking about. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, you know, craft is still important. The art, you know, making art is still important, but uh, without a community to support it and love it and be part of it, what, what, what good is it? You know? um, but I don't know if that makes sense, but anyway. Yeah. Go, go ahead. So you see that as a change. <laughs> well, that's really interesting to me that that, that is a change. So, I think for me it's a change. I I I think it's something that's it's kind of it seems like one of the things that spurred it is uh, the spoken word movement of the you know the '90s really. And uh, I think that's kind of when spoken word really got started. And um, and then and then of course probably the internet, uh, probably just the the possibility of of uh, uh, connecting across you know a lot of sort of isolated boundary kind of things mm-hmm. like we're doing today mm-hmm. um, so I'm not sure what what accounts for it but but yeah. it's I, I think it's something kind of new um, at least yeah. okay. in America for us you know and you mentioned the internet and I'm gonna do my standard plug it's like okay it's <laughs> to read people's work on the internet for free it's essential to buy the books <laughs> Thank you. That's true, and and they're so reasonably priced too. They are, and and the next part of that is buy the books as close to the source as you can. You know, yeah. buy them from the poet at the reading. Buy them from the small yeah. press if it's a small press publication. Buy them from the local independent bookseller. Try all of those kinds of things before you hit Amazon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon doesn't need you, but we do. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and man, if you buy it at a reading and get that person to sign it, even better because you will oh, have true. heard this person's words in their own voice. And then you will have that memory to enhance as you're, as you're getting to savor those words on the page. Plus that signature in the front, it's delightful. You know, so yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. a huge, huge believer that, People spend way too much money on fancy coffee drinks and can be buying books instead. <laughs> Absolutely. Both is better, but, but books is better. Uh, speaking of fancy coffee, no, the, the, uh, the, since you're in Lawrence, Kansas, I wanted to say this. I, one of the uh, people I was in graduate school with, although he kind of dropped out because graduate school wasn't really for him, uh, was a Kansan named John Stoss, S-T-O-S-S. He's from Olmitz. Uh, Kansas. Uh, do you know where that is? I don't. I have no idea. <laughs> um, okay. He was an undergraduate somewhere there in Kansas before he went to Arkansas. Uh, he was a farm boy, and uh, oh. he still is. He's uh, he's in his mid to late seventies. He lives in in Salinas, California. He is uh, the hardest working writer I know of all the writers oh. I know. He, he writes constantly. He's published uh, from small presses a couple of books over the years, not many. Uh, but Bill Lavender, uh, who also knows him, is is getting ready to publish a large selection of his work in, uh, I think, sometime in the next six months. Uh, 
um, I'll try to alert you when it happens. Maybe you can talk to him then. But uh, he's he's Kansan through and through, although he, of course, doesn't want to live there. Uh, I, I don't, <laughs> Wait I a minute, not of course. course. But, no, I didn't mean of course. I meant, uh, what did I mean? He's not living you know, here one, <laughs> I've actually never been to Kansas, but he used to say uh, living on Kansas was like living on a cold pancake. I have no idea what that means. That's, that's John's stuff. Uh, he's he also sings and paints. This is a man who celebrates uh, uh, life and art with every every moment of his life. He's really astonishing. Anyway, but he's not farming. That's, that's that is, right? He's not farming. He was not. He he tells us he was not a very good farmer, which is why he uh, left. Okay, <laughs> misunderstood. I thought you were saying that he was still he, farming. Oh no no. He used to. He said when he was a, a youngster on the farm, uh, they used to you know give him tasks, and he would do things like the tractor would turn over. And so basically, he was not a farmer. Oh, okay. Uh, he was a writer. He was, you know, he... Yeah. <laughs> no, no, he's in Selena's uh, writing and painting. Wonderful. And, Wonderful. And, and barely surviving. I, I have to say, in my random way, that when I hear Lavender Inc., it, I, I think I hadn't noticed, I, I know I hadn't paid attention to the fact that that was the name of somebody. And that's probably skewed uh, by the fact that I live in our home, which is what's called a Queen Anne Victorian, which means it has some different patterns on the sidings outside, that kind of stuff. But anyway, right. the main body color that we put on our house to proclaim that these houses <laughs> deserve to be saved and savored and care taken with them for generations to come the main color of course is lavender, lavender and it also, of course. yeah we have 14 colors on the house but but the main <laughs> color is lavender which doesn't go over quite so well in my community of lawrence kansas because some people think <laughs> lavender is purple and purple is the color of the competing state university to the oh one that's God, here where it's red and wow. blue <laughs> So you had people like, are you guys K-State fans? Like, well, I'm not sure why you're even asking that. Because your house color is like, no, it's lavender because I thought that would be beautiful. <laughs> yeah, much better. Right. And isn't isn't mauve a version of lavender? You could just say it's mauve. You know? Yeah, it's, but this, oh, is a, this has blue in it that people definitely refer to it as the purple house or the lavender house. Even though it's light, it's definitely not purple, but it is very lavender. <laughs> Anyway, I want to hear some of your poetry, and I know our listeners ah. do too. We're having a great, fun conversation, okay. but let's hear what some of your poetry sounds like. Well, uh, okay, I, I uh, since I thought you would ask, I have a couple of my books here, <laughs> and I have just no idea what to read. But let me let me read. I'll read. Uh, I'll read one that uh, that uh, my uh, my daughter used to like to hear me read when she was uh, much younger, and I wrote it. Uh, when I was still in graduate school, so this poem is about 45 years old. But uh, I was asked by someone then uh, to tell a, a story, like a bedtime story, and I choked. I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I couldn't make anything up, and I couldn't remember anything. So the next day, I was kind of haunted by that, and I I sat down and I wrote this poem. Um, it's called "The Story About the Tiger Who Spoke French." Once upon a time, a tiger sat in a tree and didn't do anything. Leaves and blossoms came. The water hearts of the apples grew. When the apples were picked, the tiger was polished and sent with the rest to market. 
In his own heart, he could not hear the water beat. When his mouth opened so he could die, many apples fell in. They fell all the way to his stomach, which took them like a princess taking love. When the apple sellers set up their baskets on the roadside, he ate them too, and a customer. That afternoon, he was painted by an artist along a leafy pond side in the city park, where he was also stroked by young girls in the uniforms of a convent school. A student discussed Rilke with him. From the far edge of the green, he heard music more perfect than any strain of the apple winds or the loose talk of birds. He watched the baseball game. Two lovers hustled him for change. In the late afternoon, he heard church bells and dined on an old woman asleep beside two little children. At dusk, he bought cotton candy and spat apple seeds and rings at the monkeys in the zoo. Later, he wandered down to the river where I was. He read some of my poems. He spoke French with my pretty wife. That's it. That's delightful. (laughs) (laughs) It's old, anyway. Has your daughter Um, illustrated it for you? No, uh, actually, that was that was the uh, title poem of of a chapbook that some friends of mine published in the early 1970s, and uh, my friend John Otis, in fact, did a lithograph uh, like on the cover of a a tiger stepping out of an apple. But uh, no, she. Uh, uh, this is uh, actually. Sh- should I not read another, or should, let me read one more? Oh, uh, sure. This is m- much more recent, but it kind of refers to that poem um there were uh this this book ever which was published in 2014 represents about 14 years worth of work even though it's only 80 pages long and one of the reasons there's so little show for that time as i was raising my son and daughter uh, with my wife and uh, that seemed to take all of our time really but um Anyway, uh, and the the first line of it is Lily. That's my daughter. Um, Lily likes me to whisper in her ear, and actually, what she liked me to whisper back when she was two or three or four in her ear was that poem, uh-huh. which uh, which I which I happen to know by heart. So anyway, uh-huh. um, this is called Ballets of Avoidance at Supper Time, uh, and it kind of refers to a time when my kids were two and four, I guess. Lily likes me to whisper in her ear. I whisper, my children are exhausting. It helps her go to sleep the way a walking lullaby used to. I whisper, I have no memory left. The important moments have vanished, the trivial too. I belong only to them now. It calms the rush of time down a click to recall this. I whisper, riddle means dark language. And so it stands to reason, lovely phrase, my life has been a riddle. Moon's the answer, says Lily. Jack thinks mushroom. I hear me whisper, as old as the earth is, that's how much I love you. As aromatic as the late summer rain, as complete as your grandfather's sleep. Lily is reading Cat in the Hat to her little bronze snails and frogs, and while Jack makes stars for universe he is creating, claiming as he does, so the stars have begun spontaneous propagation and the cat is making the stars dizzy, says Jack to Lily, while our organic black cat bear chases litters of Jack's stars across the floor. Lovely. Thank you. Yeah. That's nice. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
yeah, it's a little too sweet, maybe. But anyway. yeah, it's it's you know when you give that context, this is when you were raising your kids at the ages of two and four, and um, as somebody who has grown kids, but but relish those young ages as well as older ages, but but loved when they were mobile, when they when they became mobile and verbal enough that yeah. we could interact yeah. on that verbal level too. Yeah. That's a sweet and very demanding time, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Although yeah, I would that say was that great. always demanding. You know, I, I I asked uh, when I because I had my first child at uh, 50, I guess, Jack, and um, I asked my male friends, you know, who had grown sons, I said, you know, tell me what I should do, you know, what, 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 it, and pretty much got no advice. The, uh, the best <laughs> I guess I got was, was somebody, one friend said, you know, you'll be able to do everything you need to do. And then, uh, but, <laughs> because but, what but, you need to do will be focused in much more <laughs> What, what Bill, actually Bill Lavender, who has two grown sons, uh, told me was, uh, I can't remember because every stage is something new and you forget the stage yeah. before it. And that, that is kind of true. And I've enjoyed every stage immensely. Yeah. Now, so. yeah. Parenting looking is forward to the next one. Yeah. For those, those who yeah. have that opportunity. And, and it makes me, it makes me think about, I actually have a cousin who has been a poet probably all of his life and uh, went to Yale and has, has, has long passed that, but also has a young child for his age, you know, and has had that opportunity to re-experience that time with, with you know, through the, through the eyes and heart of, of his young daughter, he and his wife. And it's a delight. It's a wonderful delight. You know, oh, yeah. it's, it's a yeah. great thing. But also one of the things, my, my cousin's uh, in Brooklyn and his name is Marty Cohen. And and one of the things that, that we talked about at one point when we were kind of finally talking about some family things. Um, and he said, you know, the difference between us raising our kids and our parents raising us is that we believed and knew that we had the choice about whether or not to be parents. <laughs> and so he said, I'm sure that I love mine way more than either of us were loved by our parents. <laughs> uh, I, I, <laughs> I wonder if that's true. I, I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's, it's so obviously different, but I don't know if it, uh, you know whether it's a degree of love different or or some other kind of different. But you know, I I don't I I do believe my parents loved me. That's a, that's a happy thing in my life too. You know, but I, I think I would feel bad if I thought they hadn't. You know, but right. but uh, but they certainly didn't uh, treat me the way I treat my children. I guess yeah. uh, they were. <laughs> They were a little tougher and a little more expected, I guess. I don't know what it was exactly, yeah. but anyway, maybe just, we're just too easy on our kids. Nah. Kids deserve adoration. That's what I think. <laughs> no, no, this is convincing me I need to toughen up. That's all. <laughs> Things are going to change around here. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. Hey, we're going to take a quick break and hear from a couple of the sponsors of LawrenceHits.com. And this is the time when I 
always say very genuinely that I so appreciate Daniel Smith for producing the show so that not only do I get to have these fun conversations, but other people get to hear them. So thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Ralph. And we will be right back with more Talk With Me with my guest today, Ralph Adamo, who's coming to us via technology from New Orleans. Hey, listeners, welcome back. This is Marcia Epstein with Talk With Me. And my guest today is poet and father, as we were just discussing, Ralph Adamo. And I, I want to just do a quick mention that I that we didn't, neither of us managed to do early on. We talked about having first had some connection through this thing called, um, well, this thing I didn't call, um, a writing contest. And that is called the Quinnett Lived Experience Writing Prize. And that is an annual contest that is basically announced at the first of the year. So in January of 2018, that's when we'll be announcing the plan for submissions being accepted um, for that upcoming conference um, excuse me, an upcoming contest, which will have prizes awarded in April of 2018 in Washington, D.C. And so for people who thought, hey, I want to know about that, look at the page suicidology.org, the American Association of Suicidology. Look at the tab that gets you to attempt survivors. And if there will be a sub-tab that says Planet Lived Experience Writing Prize. So we encourage people to do that. I'll put that link in social media. But I wanted people to know since, again, that was one of our connections. And, of course, the other is the delightful Mark Statman, which what a, what a pleasure that this is what's happening is we get to talk. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Yeah. So we were marveling about the joys of, of parenting. And so, and you said, you know, you didn't get to write as much for a while when when those kids were, were young. And as your friend right. had you, you will have the time to do what you need. And apparently, you didn't need to be writing as much for a while. <laughs> <laughs> apparently not. No. That's okay. It was. I, what so, I had for, for for the first four years of their lives, I had three jobs, which made yeah. it really sort of hard to squeeze in writing. But yeah, know, but I started to. I did. Yeah. So did you did you consciously take a break, or it just you realize this just isn't going to happen? Let me say, I I had <laughs> in the in the uh, in the late nineties, I had the experience of writing. Uh, a long poem that is uh, like 80 pages of all connected material. And mm -hmm. uh, when I finished that, I did sort of take a break. And and the next thing was putting together the selected poems, which came out in 2002. And there wasn't a whole lot of writing in those several years. Uh, but when I was, I, I, I wanted to read one more kind of short one. Uh, okay. that's, that's, well, this is the first thing I wrote. That, that that appears in ever and uh, I was teaching uh, one of my three jobs I was teaching at a uh, an arts middle school teaching creative writing and I had a, a kind of break a free period and I, I sat at the computer and I thought I got to get back to writing I have to write and I started writing and uh, and I, I thought this turned out to be the first of about 10 short sections and it, it was way more political and more me just talking than my poetry had ever been before. And it kind of represented a real shift in direction. And that's why one reason I wanted to read it. I, I, it won't take long. 
uh, but it's from a poem which I later titled Solacisms, and this is the first, first uh, piece. Although we have no right to hurt one another, this poem yanks you out of your chair with one hand and slaps you silly with the other, all the while saying, see, it didn't have to come to this. We could have chosen justice over property, the heart's idea of what's right over the idea formed when two heads or more get together and make a plan. We could have all said all at once, but wait, there are people starving and we have silos full of grain. Maybe if we'd all been naive, all at once, all together, we could have rolled this planet over on its back and tickled its belly till it yelled, okay, okay, I'll stop. I'll confess, economics is a vast and complicated excuse for injustice. Pride makes fools of us all. And moreover, love really isn't that hard once you decide to tell the truth and hang on to it. Damn, I mean, there is enough. How many houses do you need? How many choices of soap? How much of a lead over the rest of us before you feel safe? We could just say, well, I'm in what needs to be done instead of running for the cover of sophistication and distinction church or state and you didn't write that on november 9th (laughs) (laughs) no but uh i've read it since then i i uh no it was it was a peaceful afternoon in in the uh in the old school uh, house you know but i guess i was just uh feeling angry (laughs) well Well, and to me one of the reasons i was feeling i was feeling angry for, for in part because that was right at the time when the bush administration was promoting its fake war in Iraq. And uh, and I could see it, and anybody I knew could see it, but somehow the news media couldn't see it, and the rest of the government couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. That it was, uh, it was a, it was a, uh, it was an excuse to uh, go to war. Anyway, I'm sorry, I, I, well, I was no, mad what, about that. What I, what I was gonna say is, this is to me one of those examples of how something written at a different time is so relevant today and maybe maybe gets imbued with some other meanings because yes. it's not the exact same circumstance but but it's so on i mean it just to me it like it i said it, it sounds like something that that could have been written after the election results you know absolutely yeah yeah no I, I agree yeah it, i think it just means that we we've, we've been in trouble for a long time <laughs> yeah. yeah and sometimes it's very acute it's very much in our face and yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that, I, wanna, I have to oh. say that. No, go ahead. Just that, that, that writing that uh, really freed something in me, and uh-huh. and I started writing again. And it was slow because I didn't really have a lot of time. But mm-hmm. but from then on, I kept writing again, and and then it became this book ever. But uh, which is mostly not political. But mm-hmm. anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's about no. I wanted to ask you related to you know current world events past world events I, in both your biography and in talking today you've you've mentioned Katrina which obviously is huge yeah. and I'm wondering specifically about you and your writing and are there some things that you were inspired to write because of going through that experience and that being your community uh, it, uh, oh. I have to say, like most things, most big, obvious things in my life, it's the the uh, the reflection is pretty indirect. Um, I, you know, references show up here and there in poems. I know they're there, and I think people who are reading closely will see them. But I only have maybe one or two poems where 
there's any direct mention of of uh, of the of the effects of the flood. But I do know writers, poets, and other writers who've who've done you know marvelous work, really kind of exploring that. I I just I guess I don't work that way. But what I did do, what I did do was um, the the school I had been teaching in the, the middle school for the arts, like all of the schools in New Orleans, was shut down after Katrina, and all of us teachers were fired. That was the subject of those long series of lawsuits, which ended in nothing, of course. And um, and they fired us so they would they could stop paying us. It was you know an exigency kind of thing. And uh, and one of the things that I tried to do with some friends from that school was to restart it as a charter school. We did not succeed, and uh, and I got kind of interested in the whole um, you know like people in the rest of the country, privatizers of, of public schools and for-profit companies, uh, you know, some, some good, some evil, um, and a lot of local Republicans uh, joined together to say, now this is our big chance to, you know, to have an experiment in public education where we change everything and get rid of all the bad teachers and yada, yada. And, um, and I was really, I was disturbed, angry. Uh, I was, you know, I was kind of part of that world, so I was I took it kind of personally. Uh-huh. And uh, I got a I got a grant from um, the, uh, the this uh, Open uh, Society Foundation. Open Society, am I saying that right? Yeah. Um, put out uh, a call for grants for Katrina Media Fellows, and I was one of about twenty people that that got a grant, which actually supported my family during a year of unemployment, otherwise that uh, occurred after Katrina. And uh, I wrote uh, some journalism and uh, Descent published some, uh, the American Prospect published some, uh, some I never did publish. Uh, but uh, but uh, most of what I wrote after Katrina was journalism about the effects that that opportunity had given to all these people who were dying to get a public school system and tear it apart and remake it as a sort of, and, uh, you know, the, the results have been mixed. I, I don't think they've all been bad, but, uh, but in the first few years, they were pretty troubling. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was, so that's, that's, you know, I, I kind of, uh, poetry didn't seem the right medium for me, okay. but journalism did. So okay. I did that. Yeah. And and I want to go back and ask you something else, too. You mentioned that sure. in the late 90s that you wrote what became about an 80-page poem. And, and right. I'm wondering if you will say something about that. And my, my in part, interest is because I have the book for Gabriel by Edward Hirsch, which is yes. a similar length poem, which is very beautiful and touching. And right book that I have loaned to many bereaved families. And, right. and I know that I don't normally think of a poem as being as long as a whole book, but I love this piece. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you'll tell us some about the very long poem that you did. Um, it wasn't, it didn't. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I haven't talked about it in a while. Um, okay. it, it was a, it was a strange experience. And, uh, because I had always written kind of discrete poems. Here's a poem, here's a poem, here's a poem. Uh-huh. And um, uh, what I found was I, I was drawn into this poem and 
I think I finished writing it within about a year and a half, really a year maybe. And it was as though everywhere I turned, everything that I saw fit into the poem and every book I picked up fit into it. You know, it was, it was, it was a strange experience. And I, I don't know if it's a common one for people writing long poems. I didn't set out to write a long poem. It just, just kind of happened that way. But mm-hmm. um, that, to me, that's the, that's the sort of defining memory of it is, is just that uh, every day when I woke up, I knew I would be writing and I knew it would fit and would all, you know, that's not a, a kind of certainty that I've ever had before or since, you know, Interesting. in fact, you, you hear sometimes you'll hear a poet in a, in a despairing or honest moment say, well, I don't know if I'll ever write another poem. That's pretty much the way I think most of us feel every day. <laughs> Maybe I'll never write another poem. But, but during that period when I was writing the long poem, I knew I would be writing. You know, it, it, it had that kind of uh, sort of power for me. Um, we we tell us a little bit about that poem? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I don't Is really it a- wanna... Okay. It, yeah, it's just I it I, I wouldn't know. No, it, it it was never published, and okay. and I'm not sure it ever will be. Okay. <laughs> um, sorry, I I didn't I shouldn't have brought it up, I guess. But no, it's anyway. it's interesting, especially as you describe that your experience of writing it was very different than your experience of writing at other times. That that sense of as you said, knowing that you would be writing and experiencing yeah. the world is all fitting together with this this writing that you were doing, this poem that you were creating. So. Yeah, which is kind of what makes it hard to talk about in a way. Kind of, it's, it, but, but thank you for asking. <laughs> so, and I did, I was going to say, Hirsch was one of several, uh, after, kind of after I'd finished this, I had the opportunity at Loyola to teach uh, a, a creative writing class in writing the long poem, and uh, Hirsch and there are about a dozen other poets that I found who had written both length poems that were all kind of astonishing, you know, and wonderful. And, and I used those as, as uh, models for the students in that class. And the students in that class, some of them wrote really, uh, uh, I don't know how they did it exactly, you know, from, but uh, wrote really uh, exceptional long poems themselves. That uh, was all pretty good. And, you know, the, the great model for me, it had nothing to do with my poem, but uh, Frank Stanford, do you know the name Frank Stanford? Uh, I do, yeah. He, he's, yeah, and you know that he committed suicide yeah. um, and, uh, in 1978. But one of the things he left behind was a book-length poem, which has been published, uh, called The Battlefield Where the Moon Says I Love You. Uh, it's about, in the original publication it was 540 pages and the second edition was about 400 and something pages but it's one long stanza and it's filled with uh, extraordinary language and stories and great humor and great sadness and it's just it's it, it's sort of an entire world you know um, and that is to me still the, the great long poem that I know about of the 20th century ah but, wonderful um, yeah. Do you, how do you know, how do you know, do you know Stanford from uh, other poets? Or? Actually, because at some point I started subscribing to the poems a day um, to introduce myself to more yeah. poetry. 
And mm -hmm. for people who, who don't know about that, um, it's this lovely thing. And obviously donations are always encouraged and welcome, <laughs> but you, you can um, subscribe to receive a poem a day from, I want to make sure that I get the name right, the National, I'm, I'm pulling up an, uh, one of the poems. Um, it's specifically from the uh, poets.org is the home website, the Academy of American Poets. This right. is also the group that promotes National Poetry Month of April. And I love this part, Poem in Your Pocket Day. Every year. I love that. And I challenge my listeners and friends to, to uh, carry and share a poem. And I do that myself. So, so that has been, that poem a day has been a way to learn um, about some poets who I hadn't learned about from other places. Yeah. And there was a particular Frank Stanford poem that really touched me, which mm -hmm. reminds me that I actually... Um, had tried to order a book through my local independent bookseller, and that order must have gotten misplaced because I never got it. <laughs> were, were, were you? Oh, it's really that's. Were you ordering? Uh, let, let me. Let me. This is, I, I guess, a, 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 an appropriate plug here. But uh, Copper Canyon published. Uh, what they're calling the collected poems of Frank Stanford, but it, it only has excerpts from the long poem, but it is itself 400 pages and it collects his, the seven books he published while he was alive. And then a whole lot of posthumous uh, manuscripts that, that were, you know, that people had uh, access to. And uh, he is a great poet. There's no question. Uh, no, no one reads him and has no reaction, uh, uh -huh. which is, you know, in, no matter what your level of uh, acquaintance with poetry is, I've I found that, you know students and just ordinary, just friends, anybody uh, uh, reading his in your experience too, what you just said, people you know find a poem of his and are touched, and uh, it's an amazing gift that he had. Um, he uh, uh, anyway, so the, the collected poems of Frank Stanford is available from Copper Canyon. And you should probably get that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's a big book. It'll keep you busy. Uh, but uh, yeah, did 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 that did that sort of because of your other interest in the whole uh, the suicidology uh, thing? Did that get you to to read about his his story or? I, um, you know, it's been a while, and what I what I visualize is that. Um, I also read about him in a New York Times article that probably was related to the publication of the book that you it was, yeah. I, that sounds like what I was trying to get and right. somehow that got overlooked. Right. And and the truth is that with a variety of people who I've done this show with, um, there are so many who spontaneously said things like their writing saved their lives or they have lost right. poet friends to suicide. And, and that reminder that unfortunately this is an experience that touches many, many people. In fact, there's yeah. some recent stuff saying about half of us in this country have been touched by suicide in some way. So, yeah. you know, that it's, it's not, it's not something to ignore 
Um, but uh, I, so sometimes when I hear about a person who has some renown who has died of suicide, you know, my reaction is also that, you know, there, there are unfortunately just so many people. So whether they're people that lots of people knew publicly or a set of people knew them, you know, more privately, it's, it's all sad and unfortunate and, you know, kind of fuels my commitment to doing the things that I can to help that not happen to more people. But yeah, anyway, and inexplicable. let me, uh, I, I know you're trying to move away from that, but let me say, this. Yeah. you reminded me of something. Um, uh-huh. Shortly after, this is, it was 1978 when, when Frank uh, did kill himself. And uh, uh, shortly after that, I guess sometime I was sitting someplace and uh, somebody that I knew a little bit and who didn't, I, who hadn't actually known Frank said, but knew his work said, uh, why did he kill himself? And, the question made me angry. I yeah. can't really explain that, but um, it still does kind of, you know. Yeah. Um, and I and I still don't think I have a real answer. I mean, lots of people have speculated, and there are lots of answers out there, but it's just, uh, I don't know. What is it about the question that makes, you're saying, yeah, so you've had that experience too. What is it it's, about that question that makes us mad? I think it's <laughs> it's a question that, for those of us who've lost loved ones to suicide, that it's a question that comes up early and frequently from people, and it feels yeah. invasive. It feels disrespectful. It feels uncaring. I mean, you know, obviously, yeah. I can kind of go off on that, and and I can step back and say that I believe that people say and ask things after a suicide death with the intention of wanting to understand and prevent that from happening to somebody else. Mm-hmm. But it can be very hurtful to the people who are dealing closely with the extensively, intensively with the loss. It doesn't yeah. really matter how it happened. We don't really ever get to know. You know, we right. wonder when it's our when it's our person who died, we wonder you know, why did this happen? Is there something we believe falsely that we could have prevented this from ever happening to this person? Right. It's so complicated, but when when we hear it, it's, it, it's different from saying, for me, my, my experience is when I, when I hear about somebody dying of suicide, what I think is they were experiencing so much pain that yeah. life was unlivable, and that is sad. And they have, you know, their life has ended and they have left behind people who have to grapple with that loss. And that is sad. You know, that there's yeah. so many layers of sadness. And and knowing that we'll never know really the why, that it seems like a question that's so unhelpful when instead you could say to somebody, oh, I share with you the sorrow about this beautiful person yeah. who has died. Yeah, you know? no, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for, thank you for addressing that. Thank yeah. you. And thanks for steering yeah. us back to it because, again, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this, just because so many of us are affected, have been affected by suicide loss, and we've got to talk about this stuff. It's, it's yeah. like anything else. Bad things don't go away just because we don't talk about them. In fact, they thrive when we don't talk about them. <laughs> You know, and that's that's one of the things where, you know, that more confessional kinds of poetry that some people do 
or politically activating poetry that people do, to me that stuff is is also really important. And the beautiful poets, poems that just touch us, not just, that touch us, that are lovely and give us a break from other things, that's good. And the poems that make oh, yeah. us chuckle, you know, that's good. I mean, there's, the, yeah. I, I, I'm not advocating for a certain type of impact. Of poetry, oh, no, no. You know, no. You know, beautiful, you know, wonderful. Yeah. I was going to say, Frank, uh, I mean, Frank did write about death as a kind of character a lot, but he certainly never wrote about suicide. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, didn't really, that wasn't something that, you know, he talked about either. Uh, mm-hmm. And there is, you know, as, as you're saying, I'm thinking, you know, we also associate uh, Sylvia Plath and mm-hmm. uh, now and now Frank and, and the the I guess the most trouble one of the things that's troubling there is what extraordinarily great writers they were and that didn't help them, you know. That's yeah. quite, you know. You, I guess I'm just maybe a naturally happy and optimistic person, but I, I wish I could write so well, you know. Yeah. Um, It seems like such a, I don't know, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say what we know is in terms of suicide is that it's really about the meaning that we make of things. It's not, you know, if if you believe that this person is a fabulous writer, but this person doesn't really see that, doesn't doesn't, experience that, That's that's a small example, but, you know, people can say, but you're wonderful, you're talented, you're smart, you're so loved, but if the person themselves doesn't experience the world that way. Doesn't feel it. Right. Yeah, then it's not there. And so, right. you know, for me, I know that poetry and other art actually can bring people to that place of feeling less alone, more connected, more valued, you know, and those are things that give us that meaning of life is a good thing i'm glad i'm here you know yeah but it's not just because somebody's an artist that they're going to feel that way no it's it's kind of where you started us uh, the whole the idea of, of communities of poets and communities of artists who support each other and you know that may be that may be what saves people not their own work but the fact that they're part of uh, a, a group that that yeah. cares about them and that they they can they can feel that you know I mean, uh, and the because, in is, fact, yeah. No, I'm I was going to say lighting. Right, right, no, no, I, but but it's, you know the obvious thing. Writing is is a sort of solitary act, and mm-hmm. and, and and can be very isolating and and lonely. And to have the possibility of community of of uh, poets, which as you know, I was saying, we, we seem to have here mm-hmm. in New Orleans. I, I'm guessing that everywhere there are such communities. Uh, that's uh, you know, maybe that's the antidote to uh, to the pain mm-hmm. <laughs> or something. Yeah, the pain and, that makes people. And some of it is connecting with other poets. Some of it is connecting with your audience, and some of it is knowing yeah. that your audience. You know, I I can't tell you, our listeners, anybody, how many times I've heard people say that part of their motivation is because they have the experience of hearing or reading somebody's work. And it really resonating with them and their experiences and the sense of this person is saying things that are so tender and important for me that I haven't been able to say. And I want to do that for other people. You know, and I heard this, I think it was last week, two weeks ago from young, young poets from from one of our high schools that has a very 
competitive slam team and you know and and two of the people that I was with were our sophomores just finishing their sophomore year of high school and one her senior year of high school and and one of them referenced hearing this one who's the senior in one of her poems and how much that affected her how much it it told her that she was okay and she belonged wow. that she wow. wanted that for other people and this is you know like a 16 15 whatever year old who's already yeah. had experience and motivated and like this is the beauty of this stuff it makes a difference really? you know and 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 i apologize for several times to interrupted you being a little time wise out of sync but what i wanted to say is that what we know is that belonging and feeling valued are two of the things that make life worth living and that's yeah. what suicide prevention is really about Really, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. And we are at the end of an hour. <laughs> well, let's let's talk another hour. I'm I'm just uh, I'm, I'm enjoying this. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, yes. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for talking to me for an hour. I, I just that was that's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you very much. And for our listeners, I want to remind you that there's always information on the Talk With Me Facebook page and on the uploads on iTunes and Google Play and Lawrence Hits that you'll find some information, including a link to find more of this person's work. In this case, you know, Lavender Inc. being one of the, the publishers. We want you to be able to learn more, find more. We want you to buy books, not just coffee. <laughs> So thank you, Ralph McCann. We we'll really appreciate this. And thank oh, you. Thank you, Marcia. You are welcome. And so long yeah. to our listeners.